Hello there, it's Thursday, the 2nd of July. This is Alfa Bunga Bunga. My name is Alex Hochuli. I'm in Sao Paulo, Brazil. This podcast is also George Hoare and Philip Cunliffe, both of whom in the U- are in the UK. And the producer of this episode is Philip Cunliffe. I'm going to let Phil introduce what we're talking about today. Hey, how's it going, Alex? Um, so today we're talking about the universal enemy. Um, it's the title of a book by an academic at the University of Chicago, Daryl Lee. And the subtitle of the book, which was just published earlier this year, is Jihad Empire and the Challenge of Solidarity. It's a book about, uh, it's a very close um, study of the so-called foreign fighters. So um, Arabs, uh, Muslims from all over the world who traveled to fight on behalf of um, as jihadi foreign fighters in Bosnia in the 1990s during the civil war in that country. And it's of interest, I think, of broad interest, not only for the specifics of that conflict and the long shadow it's cast over international politics, but also because the foreign fighter is a very familiar figure to politics today, particularly with respect to um, the jihadis, Westerners who've gone to fight um, in the civil wars in the Muslim world, in Iraq and Syria and Libya and so on, and um, uh, the overlap with terrorism, with global jihadi terrorism throughout the world as well. Yeah, and I should make actually a shout out to other recent episodes, which um, touch on, I guess, similar regions or similar topics. Uh, we had a recent episode with Lily Lynch on the former Yugoslavia, uh, with Kritika Varagur on uh, the Saudi call, which looks at Saudi Arabia's influence uh, around the world, especially uh, as is relevant to this episode in Kosovo and, and in Bosnia, as well as our episode on Rojava with uh, foreign volunteers there, who we interviewed, Danny Ellis and Alexander Norton. Uh, worth checking out all those episodes um, because they have some relevance to this one. Um, and I think that last one in particular is something that we should maybe draw out here because that question of foreign fighters, foreign volunteers is often looped in with other episodes of foreign fighters going off to fight in Spain in the 1930s, for example, or Rojava today. And it might be worth at this point and also through the episode trying to draw out some of the comparisons and indeed contrasts uh, between those. Yeah. Yeah. I think it's important that they're not, they're not all the same. Um, and I, th- I think this questions around foreign fighters often get shaded into, into moral questions and, you know, you have this idea of the the David and Goliath battle, whereby the the, the big empire, the, the Americans, usually are the bad guys, or <clears throat> or or something like that. So I think to get a bit more specific about the the concrete content of some of the some of the things that these the these fighters are, are struggling for, I think would be very useful. Yeah, and I mean, it seems to me that the the question of foreign fighters, I mean, you know, jihadists, I would instinctively say, no, they're a very different thing to what uh, happened in Rojava, for example, with foreign volunteers there. That's right. They seem to me completely different and not just because of the ideologies they espouse, but also just the notion of what they're doing. They're fighting in a determinate political struggle in a given state or region trying to create a state versus this kind of global jihadism which seems to happen everywhere and nowhere at the same time i mean that's at least my understanding of it or my perspective so it'll be interesting to tease out these questions as we go forward with uh, daryl today okay so uh, let's call daryl up yep let's do that so we've got with us daryl lee who's an assistant professor of anthropology and lecturer in the law school at chicago author of the universal en- enemy Jihad Empire and the Challenge of Solidarity, which has just been published this year with Stanford University Press. So welcome to the show, Daryl. Great to have you on. Thank you. Thanks for having me. So uh, could you tell us a little about how you came to undertake this study and what drew you to this topic in particular? Yeah, sure. So um, like you, I suspect, um, I am part of the kind of 9-11 generation. Um, I finished my um, undergraduate studies in 2001 and was uh, living in Palestine in the Gaza Strip, actually, on 9-11. And uh, I kind of, you know, I'm, I'm of a sort of um, middle-class Asian-American immigrant background. And for me, sort of growing up, um, sort of the political and academic track was one of largely a kind of um, domestically assimilationist and internationally liberal humanist orientation, right? So I kind of came of age in this 
odd sort of 90s moment of um, political disarticulation in the U.S. and in so many other places. Um, so as a result of that, I kind of um, uh, started out my career in kind of the human rights, humanitarian, NGO world and, um, you know, moved increasingly to the left um, in those years uh, for a variety of reasons, um, which I won't bore you with here. But in terms of the, the book, um, I remember very distinctly in the early years of the war on terror, um, sort of watching um, sort of as the U.S. was sort of unfolding new forms of globalized violence and um, watching the footage, especially of the first captives arriving at, uh, at Guantanamo Bay in Cuba. And um, I quickly realized that the, the sort of humanitarian or human rights world that I was inhabiting um, didn't have a particularly um, satisfying account of what to make of these people. Um, obviously, you know, talking about them as victims of torture and mistreatment, you know, that was the sort of primary framework. And, you know, well, that's certainly not wrong. Um, it was just clear that they had no way to account for all of these folks who the U.S. had essentially abducted, not only from Afghanistan, but from many other parts of the world. And it, it became clear to me that all of the different kinds of transnational circulation that they were involved with, um, so many of these people were you know, not involved in militant activity. They were aid workers or migrants, refugees. Um, but also those who were involved in armed activity, um, that there wasn't really a, a satisfying way of, of talking or thinking about these people. So there was an initial sort of practical concern of, you know, in the advocacy context as a lawyer, as a human rights activist, how do you, you know, uh, provide an alternative account of what these people were up to? But then also there was a deeper kind of um, political dissatisfaction, right? That in the context of the, the sort of human rights framework, there was no way to make legible um, the political antagonisms that were at work with these transnational groups. Um, and yeah. even a lot of conventional narratives on the left, too, didn't really know what to make of these folks, right? There was sort of a widespread acceptance of a liberal consensus that they represented a kind of absolute evil. Um, it's just that they had to be sort of um, attributed to um, kind of ultimately the effects of, of American imperialism, right? So this is kind of a blowback um, thesis. And of course, there's also a lot of truth to that, too. But again, it was all... Um, not really grounded in in sort of real analysis um, and and you know actually knowing what's going on, um, so that was the original right. impetus. Oh, sorry, did no, no, no. I was, I was just going to ask um, a follow up question, um, or maybe extend this a little bit, I guess, around what that analysis involved, because um, the book is cast as a study in political anthropology. Could you maybe tell us a little bit what is political anthropology particularly maybe what what does it involve you actually doing as a researcher um and how does it differ from other ways of studying politics or analyzing politics yeah no that's really helpful uh i um it's funny because political anthropology used to be uh very recognizable and major subfield of the discipline of anthropology in the united states and that um, it sort of dissolved a little bit. Um, I think there was a move in the 70s and 80s as more and more anthropologists across the board um, considered themselves political. Um, so this was part of uh, the discipline's refashioning as critical, but in a way that was sort of more or less liberal. Um, so then political anthropology as a distinct field began to lose its purchase, which was also fine because it was also overly concerned with things that looked like kind of conventional nation states. Um, so for myself, I entered anthropology more or less as a refugee from political science and international relations. Um, as you know, uh, those disciplines, especially in the US, have taken a very, very heavily um, positivist and quantitative turn um, over the past few decades. Um, and, you know, knowing things like histories of different places and different languages have been consistently devalued professionally. So for me, going into anthropology is really just a way of, of studying politics, but politics of actors who don't fit in a traditional nation state framework and who are also transnational right. sort of diasporic. Um, but just to get back to your first question, um, the original idea behind the project was actually to study the folks who went to Afghanistan in the 80s to fight the Soviet Union. Um, so this broad movement of so-called um, Afghan Arabs, which included um, Osama bin Laden and the folks who later went on to found Al-Qaeda, that, um, that particular movement 
wasn't been and still really hasn't been particularly well studied and understood. And in, in many ways, there was a kind of a convergence between the mainstream left and right narratives, right, which kind of drew a straight line between, you know, the U.S. supporting folks in Afghanistan in the 80s and then the groups that launched 9-11. Um, and while there, while the, the U.S. certainly bears overwhelming um, sort of political responsibility for all of the disastrous effects of its um, of its policies throughout the world, there was also just this weird way where the the you know, sort of existence of these actors as sort of Frankenstein creations was didn't really quite make sense because no one really had accounted for how they were instruments of U.S. empire in one minute and then kind of became its enemies the next and how that transition sort of took place. So I originally went to Pakistan um, in 2006 to do this research on um, the Afghan Arabs and for, for a variety of reasons, mostly like related to um, sort of safety and security, um, realized that project wasn't viable. So then I shifted to Bosnia because there was also a population of, you know, uh, former jihad fighters who had settled in the country and were living openly and giving interviews. And um, I decided to, to sort of speak with them instead. And that move turned out to actually be um, really fortuitous because the Bosnian war was also very much a formative moment in the 1990s around these early post-Cold War debates on humanitarianism and humanitarian intervention. It was also the first kind of political event that I sort of became sentient through as, as like a consumer of media. Um, so yeah, so that's how the, the sort of research moved from kind of the Afghanistan-Pakistan region to uh, to Bosnia instead. Mm. So, so, so less, uh, more traveling and, and fewer regressions uh, run on, on voter numbers. Sounds, sounds like an interesting way to study politics. What I was going to say was um, the... So you framed it, you kind of described your emergence from uh, kind of NGO humanitarianism and liberal consensus. Um, and you talk about the your dissatisfaction with that framework for understanding politics. So could you tell us a bit about how you understand the claims of humanitarianism and what your criticism of it is before we talk a bit more about um, your the people who you studied more directly in Bosnia? Oh, yeah. So um, I don't think I have that much to add here. I mean, my, my criticisms are, you know, pretty standard, right? That the kind of liberal humanitarian um, framework tends to evacuate various political conflicts of their specific and contextual character. And they tend to set up the United States or the West, what have you, as kind of a, a neutral referee between these actors that can sort of step in and regulate amongst them. Um, so it, at an analytical level, it tends to not be super helpful. And of course, politically, it can also, um, you know, license all sorts of um, unaccountable forms of, of violence. Um, but that being said, um, I wasn't trying to write a book that, for me, that critique is sort of like assumed, right? I think there's a lot of people who are deeply, deeply invested in, in kind of discrediting that narrative. And I'm yeah. very sympathetic to that. Um, at the same time, I think some of the folks who are trying to discredit that narrative are also doing it in the service of other regimes and political projects that I'm not really interested in aligning with. And so for me, the uh, the book was also a response to the frustration around those debates, because as cogent and as on point the critique of humanitarianism is, um, again, it, it's it sometimes gets wrapped up in other political agendas that are really less savory. And then the debate kind of falls into this weird stalemate. Um, so the book is really, it, it, you know, it's not talks on both your houses and it's not purporting to sort of resolve the stalemate once and for all. It's just to sort of step back and say, well, okay, we've had this debate for, you know, 20 odd years now. Um, and, you know, maybe there's something else that, that can be um, seen here that might be interesting that wasn't um, appreciated as much before. So, you know, a lot of these things really talk about kind of the West going in and then they talk about the local actors pushing back and what often falls out of the picture are all of these other sort of, you know, this kind of third category of actors, right? So the transnational sort of jihad folks that I look mm -hmm. at are in that, right? They're not really, they're, they're, not, they're not the locals, they're not the internationals, you know, as conventionally understood. And yeah, the, the book sort of attempts to look at the world through their eyes because that's not a perspective that we get a lot of exposure to. Yeah, that, that's really interesting. It's uh, Daryl, it's Alex here. Uh, and it, I think one of the ways that really intrigued me um, reading through the book, uh, the way that you kind of treat these kind of third actors is 
through the frame of universalism, right? Like so, you, and and not just them, but also you treat humanitarianism, the global war on terror, and peacekeeping all as different kind of forms of universalism, along with the jihadis. So. I mean, I think it's probably worth uh, maybe at this point, if, if you could spell out to us what you actually mean by political universalism. Um, I It didn't occur to me really to think of jihadism necessarily as a universalism. You know, I think of it in terms of it being a global phenomenon, but not necessarily universal. So what do you mean by that? And maybe also as a consequence, what is particularism, you know, in contrast to the universalism that uh, that you take up as a frame to examine these issues? Yeah, so, um, you know, so that... It, if there's so there's one debate that I'm trying to step back from, which is the humanitarian intervention debate, and then at a more abstract level, there's the classic debate about you know universalism versus particularism, right? Are are there real universals? If so, what are they, right? You know, is liberalism universal? Is Marxism universal? And again, I think there's a similar thing where the critiques of universalism make a lot of sense, right? So we often see claims like, oh, you know universals aren't really universal or they're used as pretexts for doing things that are horrible um, or you know they're actually much more historically contingent than we actually thought and um, and then of course the, the sort of pushback which is well you know we can't just devolve into endless particularities and differences right and again for me the those two um, you know those two sets of arguments are are totally conjoined they're two sides of the same coin um, and instead of getting into a, a sort of debate about, you know, what's truly universal and what's not, or are there universals or not, um, I approach it more as an anthropologist, which is to say I'm interested in how people make universal claims, how they make claims that they think um, are, are projected to all of humanity, and then how do they deal with the differences that pop up, right? So, like, there's no universalism that I know of that wants to make everyone in the world exactly the same, yeah. right? Every universalist project has some variation on, okay, here are some common values that we want everyone to share. And, you know, we're going to allow all sorts of variation, right? We just, it just has to be the right kind of variation that fits within our framework. And, you know, we're going to develop some kind of mechanism for determining, you know, what, what kinds of variation are okay. So like in international law, right, we can think of, you know, the, the prohibition um, on torture, right, as a universal norm, but then states are expected to, like, come up with their own way of, um, of banning torture within, um, within their national legal systems. So, you know, I just am trying to understand how that mechanism works when it's being used by people who we often don't think of, right, in relationship to universalism. Mm. So, Know, the typical rap on like folks who travel for jihad is that you know they're just against like diversity cosmopolitanism they're against the west they're just you know they're haters right they're haters of everything and um so for me thinking about them in the context of universalism draws attention to phenomena that really don't get talked about a lot like the fact that can, can oh, I just sorry, interrupt? Can, uh, sorry. No, it's just because yeah. I, I think it might be useful, um, I think for listeners in particular, if you could kind of give an example, maybe from some of the interviews you've done of what kind of language and discourse that people would use uh, to make these universal claims. So like, what are the sorts of claims that they would make, which are for you universal and and therefore not particular? Um, you know, it's, oh, right. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, so these folks, you know, they, um, you know, they like, many other pious Muslims talk about Islam as, um, you know, a prophetic religion that carries a message for all of mankind. And that Islam, you know, has the potential to encompass, you know, all of humanity, even in a very, very hypothetical kind of or notional sense. Now, for me, this isn't like some narrative about, you know, these scary folks who are trying to take over the world. Um, it's about setting up um, a kind of aspiration that gives you a moral authority to make certain kinds of claims. So, for example, um, you know, if you go to the UN on any given day, people talk about, you know, the international community. The international community says this, the international community wants that. But, you know, if you were to actually, like, take some sort of poll of the entire human population, I think you would find that there's not a huge number of people who really, uh, who affirmatively identify with this category of the international community or would endorse the things that it purportedly, you know, says or wants to do as announced by UN headquarters in New York, right? So that's why for me, you know, it's not at all about what's really universal and what's not. You know, you can have 50 people in a room making universal 
claims. You know, it may not be very interesting, but you know, from my perspective, starting with relatively small groups of people and looking at how they talk about universalism is interesting because you can talk about universalism, but then you have to make it work when people are actually really different in all sorts of ways. Right. So these um, folks who are engaged in, um, in transnational jihad activism, whether it's in Afghanistan or Chechnya or Bosnia or so on, again, they're kind of making a claim, one, to all of humanity, two, to all Muslims, but then they have to deal with like actual racial, national, ethnic difference. Right. Um, so there's just a lot of operational stuff about what do you do about language? What do you do about um, differences over forms of religious practice in different places, which again, for me, the parallel coming out of the humanitarian NGO world is sort of what UN peacekeepers do, right? On the one hand, they represent kind of the world community. On the other hand, they're divided into national contingents. They show up in a place where people, you know, don't really know what to do with them. Um, but they're bringing kind of, you know, the, uh, a message for all of mankind, right, in the form of international law, human rights, and so on. And um, and they're and they're trying to make it work, oftentimes badly, um, oftentimes creating all sorts of problems. And in that broad kind of structural sense, um, there's a parallel to the jihad fighters um, and their experiences that I was looking at. So on that note, Daryl, um, could you you've set the kind of you've talked a bit about how the um, the jihadi fighters that you've um, studied how they project their universal claims and how they might understand it and we'll talk more about it but could you and you've mentioned also the different kind of universalism that might be invoked by people at the united nations or indeed peacekeepers could you talk a bit about the universalism that would underpin say the global war on terror which you talk about in the book, and also the universalism of the non-aligned movement and the old third world, of which um, the former Yugoslavia was such an important component during the Cold War, because those stories also intersect with the um, the research that you do in the book. Yeah, so I think with the War on Terror one, that's the one you know folks are probably most familiar with, right? There is an idea that um, humanity is uh, is threatened by a particular category of folks, right, who reject uh, the very existence of that category, right? And I think that's a pretty, you know, that's a discourse that I think we're pretty familiar with. And the, the book tries to do is just to um, look at it from a different angle. So, um, so the way that the book approaches the jihad is by looking at migration and all of these folks sort of circulating between different places. Um, and, and how they kind of um, demonstrate uh, cultural competency across different places. And then that perspective ends up informing how I read the war on terror. Um, so uh, a lot of the discourse on the war on terror is disproportionately focused on a few very, very highly visible prisons. Um, of course, Guantanamo being the best known. And it leaves out the fact that there's actually a global uh, carceral network that involves prisons and sites of captivity in many, many countries, most of which are not run by the United States. Most of the dirty work that's done in the war on terror is done by client states. And uh, the, the chapter on the war on terror kind of follows a bunch of these folks as they get shipped from U.S. facilities like Guantanamo to, you know, seemingly ordinary sites of detention like this immigration detention center in Bosnia, where I did some field work, and that um, understanding kind of the full totality of the war on terror as an instantiation of American empire means you have to take seriously the role of um, of sort of uh, of client states, right? Basically, all the other countries beside the U.S. The things that the U.S. does on its own, in its own name, are terrible enough, but they're actually only the iceberg, uh, the tip of the iceberg of the violence of the war on terror and of, um, of American sort of empire, more broadly speaking. Thanks, and, uh, George, George here. And the sorry. way, wait, the non-aligned movement, I wanted to hear about the- Oh, sorry, sorry. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, so there's kind of this, uh, there's kind of this funky and chapter. If you could and if you could maybe talk a bit about the people specifically connected to that story as well, that would be interesting, I think. Yeah, so I think there's there's a there's a, a funky chapter in the middle of the book which talks about um, the sort of rise and fall of the non-aligned movement in um, in Yugoslavia. Um, so for folks who may not be familiar, um, the non-aligned movement, broadly speaking, referred to a block of states that uh, tried to sort of navigate between uh, the sort of you know uh, capitalist block and communist block during the Cold War. 
Um, one of the ironies, of course, being that most of the states in the non-aligned movement were actually very much aligned with either the United States or the Soviet Union. But a few countries, especially uh, Yugoslavia, um, did attach a lot of significance um, to this idea of, um, of being between the blocks, right? So, for example, um, Yugoslav citizens were, uh, were quite fortunate um, in their ability to travel um, in both the Eastern and Western blocks, um, especially during the later years of the Cold War. Um, and this idea of belonging to a kind of broader third world or non-aligned space was also, it, it, you know, it influenced kind of everyday life in Yugoslavia as well. Like to the extent there was a sense of um, being cosmopolitan and seeing uh, sort of, you know, visibly racially distinct folks in um, Yugoslavia, it was often through uh, people who came as, uh, as students uh, to Yugoslavia. So um, just as uh, I try to use a kind of um, lens of, of following migrants from below and talking about the war on terror and talking about jihad movements, um, the chapter on the non-aligned movement says, hey, usually we talk about non-alignment um, by thinking about kind of summits between um, statesmen, right? Like, so Tito, the leader of Yugoslavia, look at him meeting with Gamal al-Mosler, the president of Egypt, meeting with, you know, uh, Jawaharlal Nehru, the prime minister of India. And uh, there's much less attention paid to like um, regular folks whose travel was made possible by the non-aligned movement. Um, so yeah. in the case of Yugoslavia, you have all these students coming from the third world. And one of the ironies um, of the jihad is that as Yugoslavia implodes, as Yugoslav socialism becomes discredited, non-alignment kind of gets discredited as well. And one of the weird effects of that is that Arabs in Yugoslavia, who in the 80s were seen as kind of these tokens of transnational solidarity, suddenly come under suspicion, um, basically racial profiling as potential um, sort of jihadis. Um, and at the same time, a small number of these Arab students, um, you know, basically join the jihad and they play a crucial role as interpreters because they're bilingual in in sort of Serbo-Croatian slash Bosnian and Arabic. And uh, so they, you know, they're kind of the local fixers and, and guides to, you know, politics and culture for fighters coming from abroad. Yeah, Georgia. Sorry, I didn't introduce myself when I asked a question earlier. Um, but yeah, just I think just to be clear here, especially for our listeners who might not have read the book, um, what would you say is the concrete content of the political universalism that the the jihad movements that you study are fighting for? Because um, I think it's often, as you said previously, a, a sort of a negative presentation against the West kind of there. There's, but you do say, you did also say um, Islam can encompass all of humanity. What is the, I guess, what are, what are the concrete political ideals that they're, that they're um, struggling for? Yeah, so um, lowest common denominator, the idea behind the jihad in Bosnia was that Muslims in Bosnia are suffering, they are victims of mass atrocities, and Muslims around the world should uh, should help them by, by all means necessary, um, including um, joining combat, right? So the book follows, um, you know, this uh, migration of folks to Bosnia. And um, what's interesting is that they, uh, they kind of set up their own special battalion that is under the command of the Bosnian army. Um, Bosnian army being avowedly uh, non-sectarian um, it's dominated by Muslims. Many of them consider themselves secular or non-practicing, and many of the generals are, you know, were communists sort of up until, you know, last week. Um, so you have folks who are coming who are, you know, you might associate with more orthodox um, versions of Islamic practice, like Salafism, who are fighting alongside and under the orders of um, basically non-Muslims or non-practicing Muslims. Um, so, uh, yeah, so the, the basic basic idea was just, you know, defend Bosnia, right? And now on top of that, you have individuals involved who have all sorts of other agendas, right? So some of them, you know, are interested in the idea of establishing an Islamic state um, or implementing uh, Sharia in some way, but that wasn't actually a, a programmatic part of, of what the of what was doing. At the same time, what these folks are doing in their mobilization is they're articulating a critique of the international system, right? They're basically saying the UN and the West, you guys are you know, you guys are at best um, sort of incompetent and at worst, like actively complicit in these mass atrocities against Bosnia. So for them, there's also um, a critique of the international order that's there. But it's funny, it's ambiguous as to whether they see themselves as replacing Western intervention or supplementing it. 
um, you know, they're they're there at the same time as all of these UN peacekeepers, and there really isn't uh, much of a record of confrontation between the two. They're sort of operating mm. in a sort of uncomfortable parallel space with each other. That's that's fascinating. I think it is that because there's some similarities in the sorts of ideas that they're that they're advocating. The, I mean, you mentioned this idea of suffering and mass atrocities on the one hand, and critique of the international system on the other hand. And I think maybe that first sort of genre that that seems fairly allied with ideas of humanitarian intervention, a kind of uh, almost a moral impulse to to step in and protect mm-hmm. somebody with whom you share certain crucial characteristics. Yeah, I mean, I think the big difference is that um, the jihad is an explicitly um, partisan intervention, right? It takes sides. So in that sense, it has an open commitment to politics, whatever you might think of it, that the peacekeepers don't, right? So the internationals, if you will, the UN types, um, are always, you know, claiming to be neutral. And then, of course, that exposes them to, you know, charges of of not being so neutral. Um, But yeah, with the jihad folks, you know, you don't, you know, you know where they stand, at least. So um, to pick apart some of this a bit more, I suppose, um, notwithstanding your methodological warnings about um, arbitrating over different universalisms or how useful um, it is to to do it in terms of studying um, or analyzing these different phenomena, um, surely, you know, once that once um, once we've taken on those kind of caveats and warnings, surely, nonetheless, it becomes incumbent on us and we're forced back into the back onto the um, we have no choice in fact but to um, end up evaluating and arbitrating universalisms and it seems to me um, uh, that all of these variants are essentially um, you know degraded or degraded forms of globalism of one sort or another the global war on terror humanitarianism the international law kind of promulgated by the UN and as you suggest yourself um, the kind of the interdependence of um, the foreign fighters of the 1990s, the jihad of the 1990s, with this global humanitarian vision. Um, I mean, so surely, surely we you kind know, of we're forced into a position of recoil, and we do have to evaluate and arbitrate the very the character of the various universalisms on offer. Yeah, I mean, I don't think it's really possible to dispense with universalism altogether. Um, which is not to say that you know there are any universalisms out there that um, that don't have massive problems. Um, so you know again, the, the, I'm not you know I mean in this one book I I don't really purport to have an answer to the you know eternal conundrum of universalism as such or wither universalism, um, but rather just to use it in a way that's unconventional and hopefully sheds light on something that's widely misunderstood. But yeah, to your broader question, I think that. You know, uh, well, I guess what I would say is, um, yes, what these folks are doing share, you know, there are all of these parallels between all of these universalist projects that are deeply, deeply problematic. Um, That being said, it's not obvious to me if that means that we are trying to find a way out of universalism altogether or to find just a way that a universalism that's more um that's more palatable or more appealing um and which was you know like for your question which of those two are you kind of um more inclined towards or or reaching towards are you asked you're asking me or is it yeah yeah yeah, totally yeah well i mean i think the way you cast it in terms of the um how um jihadism kind of emerges and the ruins of non-alignment in bosnia and in the specific kind of uh, biography of individuals uh, former third world students who end up acting as interpreters for the various um, Mujahideen arriving, Jihadis arriving in Bosnia. Um, that seems to me to, uh, you know, non-alignment seems to me in itself to be something which is more, um, you know, it's more appealing, but also that the jihad is, or jihadism is a degradation of the earlier form of universalism. And it in itself, non-alignment is a kind of a degraded universalism of a higher internationalism from the early 20th century the kind of the globalism of the early soviet state so it seems to me there's a kind of a, a long genealogy of um, these ideas kind of twisting and mutating and changing shape but that there is an inevitable descent through all of them 
Um, and that is, I think it seems it's incumbent on us to recognize that, it seems to me, no? Well, I mean, when you say degraded, I'm just trying to figure out like what the what the pure universalism that everything kind of dis, you know is is a bad version of is like for I mean, I think the, you know, as appealing, for example, as the Yugoslav Socialist Project was, I think one of the things that made it really, uh, that sort of sapped its political um, potency in world affairs was that it was kind of, um, it was so broad that it didn't really have very clear content, right? So a lot of the studies of non-alignment are basically all about how non-aligned states didn't really, you know, do what they said they were doing much of the time. Um, so again, I'm not sort of trashing the non-aligned movement at all. I think there's a lot to it that's very promising. It's just that it's not obvious to me that it's somehow like the the model for universalism. And also, I mean, in its heyday, you know, critique of non-alignment actually came from uh, other varieties of sort of um, Marxist internationalism, right? Yeah, I mean, so absolutely. much of the non-aligned movement was about opposing the Soviet Union. Um, so, yeah. and I think when we're talking about you know, that uh, those sort of um, like family disputes between different kinds of universalist left projects, right? Or what, what I would, yeah. what the book's vocabulary would say, universalism kind of in a Marxist idiom. Um, that's, I mean, to me, that's a much more interesting conversation than kind of dunking on humanitarian universalism, only because I think, you know, at least for the purposes of, of a discussion like the one we're having, you know, we kind of we more or less agree on that, right? Um, but if we get into the specific content of the Soviet versus the Yugoslav versus Maoism and so on, I mean, that's, you know, yeah, that is super interesting. And I guess what I would say is, you know, yeah, on the one hand, you can say that it's degraded, but on the other hand, I would say that, you know, as problematic um, and as unappealing as these transnational jihad projects have been, um, it doesn't totally escape notice that they are among the few folks who, since the end of the Cold War, actually were able to get together um, in a transnational armed way on terms that were not ultimately dictated by American empire. Um, so for me, it's not look at how great these guys are. It's wow, look at how these guys, even as problematic as they are, were able to do things that the global left, for lack of a better term, hasn't really even begun to think about in the past 30 years. So, George, I know George has a question on this, but I just want to push you a bit on this question about the relationship with American empire. Um, because, uh, as you, you mentioned yourself, from talking through the origins of the project by going to Pakistan to study the Arab Afghans, um, and then also the fact, I mean, you know, the um, the uh, the way in which Bosnia became a test case for post for a post-Cold War NATO project, and also a test case for a new vision of humanitarian imperialism, um, I mean, surely, surely the jihadis are um, entirely bound up with that project, um, rather than being separate from it. I mean, where would you draw the where would you draw the line of separation from the American Empire and the humanitarian politics of the era? So, I mean, I recognise obviously they wouldn't, you know, the peacekeeper and the jihadi or the NGO worker and the jihadi might not recognise each other um, as uh, belonging to the same kind of project, but. It seems to me this is what you're trying to draw out, and we can see them as part of the same kind of mo um, the same kind of moment and the same kind of uh, that both embody a kind of a transnational vision. Mm -hmm. So, how do you? I mean, where do you see the separation that draws your interest? Yeah, so the political um, independence, I suppose, that draws your interest. If you could talk a bit about that. Yeah, I think um, I think for the okay. So part of what's interesting here is that um, part of what, the, what I'm trying to do with the book is to draw out a sense of um, transnational armed Islamist actors as having some kind of autonomy from the American imperial project, even though, of course, they're totally playing, you know, in a world shaped by Washington's rules, right? So the, the 80s moment with Afghanistan is one where, you know, there's a very, very clear alignment. They're on the same side. Now, there, I think people tend to conflate the Mujahideen, the local Afghan Mujahideen, who were very much uh, supported by the U.S. from the Arabs like bin Laden, who, you know, were on the same side, but operating with a little bit more autonomy. Um, and then you have the post 9-11 moment where there is a clear moment of antagonism, right? So Al-Qaeda and the U.S. kind of at war with each other. Bosnia is this weird in between where, uh, you know, the U.S. itself 
has an ambiguous position towards Bosnia, right? On the one hand, they're supporting an arms embargo that uh, structurally disadvantages uh, Bosnia and Bosnian Muslims. On the other hand, at least towards the end of the war, they begin to intervene kind of against um, against against the Serbs. And essentially, you know, I, I see it as, you know, classic divide and rule, let both sides kind of bleed out so that you can establish, you can sort of walk in after and, 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 uh, and enjoy kind of the ruins, right? So in that sense, you know, the the U.S. Um, to the extent they're paying attention to the folks in these book in the, in this book, you know, they're not totally against them. You're absolutely right, but they're not, you know, they're not arming them. They're not funding them. And actually, one of the conditions for them to send their peacekeepers into Bosnia is to have them expelled. And on the on the very day that the treaty that ends the war is signed the leadership of the jihad battalion in Bosnia is um, executed kind of all in, in ambush um, in, a, in, a, in, a, in an incident that is, you know, almost certainly done with the blessing, not only of the Americans, but also of the Bosnian Muslim leadership. So, you know, I think in this particular moment in Bosnia, we can say that, you know, the jihad folks in the U.S. were um, broadly on the same side towards the end of the war, but, you know, eyeing each other with a lot of mistrust and suspicion, which is why the Americans need to, you know, need to make sure that they are um, more or less neutralized as a factor um, before coming in. Mm. So to pick up a couple of themes. Oh, sorry, the last thing that I want to mention is that yeah. um, one of the other groups that plays a very important role in the jihad mobilization to Bosnia is, uh, is an Egyptian armed group, uh, which at that time is actually engaged in a really intense um, insurgency against the regime of Hosni Mubarak in Egypt, right? Who, of course, is a very, very staunch U.S. ally. So again, there is this weird, you know, sense where um, these these actors are showing up in different places and connecting different ge geographies, and not always clearly on one side or the other of the global divide, which is also part of the ambiguity of this moment that's kind of after the Cold War and before. Right. Yeah, um, yeah. Th thanks for thanks for that. Um, but to, to maybe to pick up a couple of themes from Phil's question and also to put, I guess, this discussion in conversation with some of our previous episodes, we've had foreign fighters on this show, Brits who went to fight um, with the Kurds in Rojava. What's mm -hmm. I, what's the way to compare different transnational armed groups? I mean, can we say that there's a more authentic solidarity? Is this, the, you, this obviously is a, a term used in the book, in support for Kurdish self-determination and autonomy than, say, Westerners who went to fight the jihad on behalf of ISIS? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, the, you know, the book doesn't sort of try to give like um, sort of normative criteria for like what's good universalism or what's good solidarity versus not. But I, I actually think, you know, even getting to that conversation is in my view, like an advance in um, in, in the discourse, right? Um, so yeah, the in terms of the folks who have gone to fight um, with the YPG and also the folks who have fought on the side of, of ISIS, you know, I think we would look for certain things, right? We, well, first there's a, there's a general um, first order principle question of like, do you even agree with the broader project that they're espousing, right? And I'm not sure if I have criteria for that. I think that's just sort of a political judgment. Um, but even beside that, um, you know, there's just things you look for in terms of, you know, the um, the success or not of building strong ties with local populations, right? Of being accountable to the folks you claim to be aiming or claim to be aiding or representing. Um, you know, basic like military and practical efficacy, right? I mean, these are things that, you know, are just sort of the more, among the more obvious um, sort of things to be looking for. And also in terms of just, you know, the extent to which the participation in armed action is also tied to a broader project of, um, of social transformation, right? And of course, yeah, so part of that has to do with whether you agree with the goals of that transformation, but then part of it is just looking at the ability to achieve such a thing. Um, so for example, that's why, the volunteers who fought, um, so say like Russian and Greek volunteers who fought on the sides of the Serbs um, in the wars in the 90s next to Yugoslavia, um, I haven't seen them trying to articulate that kind of broader, like they were there to help fight and that was it. 
Whereas the folks who were involved in Bosnia, although their, their political goal was to help the Bosnians in the war, they also had ideas for sort of um, Islamic reformism that they tried to, you know, uh, for lack of a better term, proselytize to the local population. Um, that didn't go particularly well, but the fact that they had that vision and took some steps towards implementing it also kind of gestures to, you know, some of these broader ideas of what universalist projects um, are often about. Um, Daryl, I, I really have to <laughs> take exception, I think, to, to the idea that uh, we don't have criteria for judging a political project. I mean, surely we surely we do, or we should at least strive to do that, uh, whether, for example, Rojava is enhancing human flourishing or liberation or freedom or equality or whatever, um, whatever your u- stripe of universalism you may bring to the table I think that surely it's incumbent upon us to actually make those judgments. I mean, that's if you, if that's where you, you admit that that's where the starting point is, right? That you have to evaluate whether you know ISIS or Rojava are good projects or good things. Um, so why why are you, do you would you then withhold from from actually making that judgment? Oh, I don't disagree at all. I'm just saying the the book is not trying to do that, right? As like it's just a you know like run of the mill act you know work of scholarship that's trying to contribute to an academic disciplinary debate. Um, of course, you know, we all have our criteria for assessing these different projects. Um, I'm not denying that at all. I'm just not purporting to, you know, like provide a guide in that respect. Oh, no, I mean, I, I, I take that point. Um, I, I mean, and, and on the kind of uh, kind of secondary level about comparing foreign fighters, um, and maybe to pick up and, and just press on the theme that George brought up, I mean, that basically... Yeah, I mean, how do we judge if we're, if we're going to defend foreign fighters? How do we judge whether their intervention is legitimate? I guess because there's a risk that in opening up uh, the possibility of, of of a kind of homogeneous global space in which everybody can intervene in one another's struggles, that it opens the door for all sorts of adventurism and not least, well, on one level, uh, you know, kind of adventurism from foreign fighters and even worse, intervention by great powers. So how do you propose to disentangle these and and to make a distinction between, you know, saying, oh, going to fight, uh, you know, fight the fascists in Spain in the 30s, good, but, uh, you know, going to Rojava, bad, or whatever, however it might be? Yeah, that's a great question. I was actually going to ask you the same thing about, like, you know, what do you guys think of, say, like the international brigades, right? And can we discern criteria from, you know, that that are helpful for the conversation? I mean, I guess I mean, there's a bit off the top of my head, but I would say that one, if it's a determinate struggle within a given society that you're intervening in and you have your own organization, which I, and I think that's that's also the question, uh, I think bringing forward the role of political organizations and solidarity between political organizations and struggles gives the whole thing some concreteness and avoids precisely the dangers, the pitfalls of adventurism, where it's just some guy going, hey, I want to whatever, my life shit, I'm going to go off and fight <laughs> on some foreign land to give my life meaning. Um, but rather that, you know, you're engaged in a struggle at home, there's a struggle abroad, and that the the organizations may, dis- may decide that they, you know, have a, have a common struggle uh, that you can participate in, which I think that at least maintains the notion of internationalism, of internationalism, um, which would be different from the sort of globalism that I would see that a lot of jihadism participates in, where it just seems to, and you know, correct me if I'm, if I'm misunderstanding it, but that it sort of flattens the world into this homogenous global space where anybody can fight anywhere else and anywhere can carry out um, their acts, whether you class them as terrorism or other forms of, uh, of political violence. Yeah, no, I think that's why, um, you know, the because um, I agree, like, you know, I, I if we're talking about globalism in this very abstract and empty sense, you know, I think we all agree that that's deeply problematic. And I think what's interesting about the, the what the book looks at is that, you know, um, the folks who went to Bosnia did submit themselves and made themselves accountable to a local authority, a local national government. Right. Which, again, defies the expectations of what we think so-called jihadis are about. Now, we can still, I think, take exception to the underlying, because I, again, I think there's, there's even in what you're saying, there's a little bit of this double thing, right? On the one hand, we want to talk about, do we agree with the principles? And on the other hand, we want to talk about, well, you know, do we think that they are accountable, right, in some way, politically accountable 
to principles and to actual actors on the ground. And I think at least in the second category, you can, you know, I think the, the, the case of the folks that I'm looking at in Bosnia, you know, again, defies some of our conventional expectations of what sort of jihadis do, quote unquote. Yeah, that, make, that makes sense. So I suppose to give it, uh, unless you had a follow-up, Alex. Oh, go, go ahead, go ahead. Uh, the final, uh, our final question, I guess, um, Daryl, is how would you expect or hope the reader will have altered their assessment of the foreign fighters um, of the 1990s, at least, after having read this book? Well, um, I guess if we're talking about a sort of political readership, um, I'm not really sure if it matters what they think about you know, what these guys did in the 1990s, right? In that sense, it's kind of like, I mean, people who are in the region care because the presence of these folks continues to be like highly politicized in all sorts of problematic ways in in, in Bosnia and in ex-Yugoslavia. But if you're talking about kind of like a broader left audience in the West, um, it's less about, you know, correcting their misperception about jihad fighters. I mean, that's fine, but really about provoking the kinds of questions that you guys are raising, which is how do we talk about, um, you know, quote unquote, fighting in other people's wars? What does that mean? How do we distinguish the accountable from the unaccountable or the, or the more or less problematic forms of participating in violence in other places? Like, I think if we say on the one hand, you know, empty globalism, free for all, people can go and fight wherever is one obvious problem that we want to avoid. And if the other is just to say, well, you know, all struggle should be conducted exclusively on local terms, I think that's also a kind of problematic position, if anything, because it tends to just reinstantiate the enormous structural advantages that empires and other folks who aren't respecting localism already have, then, you know, if we don't believe that either of these extremes is the answer, then we have to, like, actually come up with some criteria and some ideas for for, for understanding and for legitimizing, you know, what these forms of active, activism might be, especially if we're talking about a left that, you know, has much less access to state power than left did in previous generations, right? So I think in that sense, you know, that's what I hope people kind of, you know, start thinking about in relationship to the book. I think that I hope, um, certainly for me, it's helped me to um, think more carefully about it, and I hope it'll do so for our listeners too. So thank you very much for coming on the show. Great. Thanks so much. Cheers, Daryl. Cheers.